Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're going to talk about something that is not only applicable, but is relevant to you in this exact time and situation. In the middle of 2020, in the global pandemic, the world is changing. It looks so different than it did two months ago. And we're struggling with fear and doubt and just with being sick and tired. It's time for a relevant message from God. We're going to talk about soup. We're going to talk about soup. Like for the next 25 minutes, you're going to be thinking about soup. And I'm going to be talking about it. I don't know what kind of soup you're going to be thinking about. It's going to be your favorite type of soup, I hope. Which obviously is... Which kind? Like a, like a beef soup with like borscht. some pasta. Borscht soup? I don't know about that. Uh, if you said chicken noodle, that's, that's fine. That's a good option. If you said tomato, only with grilled cheese. Just tomato by itself with no grilled cheese. That's a poor lunch. That's a poor lunch. And now, well, what time is it? It's probably 11.30, right? So now you're thinking about lunch and we're talking about soup. Maybe you're having soup for lunch. So how exciting would that be? but we're talking about soup. Now, this might be the part of the service where you regret tuning in because the youth pastor is talking, and you can already tell just a minute in that the youth pastor is going to go off on some crazy tangent about something that makes no sense. I'm sorry. But it's soup day. What would you give for your favorite bowl of soup? Like, we just talked about your favorite. What would you give for it? What would you sacrifice for? What would you do to get it today? Maybe you can't have it right now because your grandma makes it, your mom makes it. Maybe you can't have it because you're not with them. Or maybe you can't have it because you forgot the recipe. It's been years. Maybe, maybe grandma passed away and it was her soup. Or maybe you like soup from a can and you can't get to the grocery store to get your favorite can of Campbell's. What would you do to get it? How hard would you work? How far would you drive to get a bowl of your favorite soup? What would you give up for it? It sounds like a youth group game. Like this week as I was thinking about what would you give for a bowl of soup? I imagine the teenagers sitting in the youth room on the couches all around in a circle and a little table in the middle of the room. And the question is, what would you give for a bowl of soup? And we go around the room and each teenager would say, well, I would give up this for a bowl of soup. And the next one says, well, I I would give even more for a bowl of soup. It sounds ridiculous, but it's exactly where we're going. What would you give for a bowl of soup? Well, Esau would give up a lot. We're going back to Genesis, to the first book of the Bible. We're leaving Hebrews behind to go to the very beginning. And this morning, as we open up Genesis 25 for a couple minutes, we're going to look at the worst trade, the worst deal, the worst deal, the worst deal in history, everything for a bowl of soup. We're going to start with the birth story of Jacob and Esau. We're going to start at Genesis 25, verse 24. Read along with me and see what you think. The story goes like this. When the time came for her, that's Rebecca, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out, he was red. His whole body was hairy. It was like a garment. That's why they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, grasping Esau's heel. So, of course, they named him Jacob, the heel grasper. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. 
The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, man of the open country. We can imagine a rugged individual, very manly. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents, mama's boy. Isaac had a taste for wild game. He loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why they also call him Edom, red. Jacob replied first, sell me your birthright. Okay, let's pause for a second. Sell me your birthright. Now, you're at home, maybe with other people watching this right now. You look at them and you ask them, is that a good trade? A bowl of soup for his birthright. Now, who is Esau? Esau is the firstborn son of Isaac. What would Esau's birthright be as the firstborn? What would his inheritance, what would his share look like? As the firstborn son of Isaac, the chosen son of Abraham, the promise holder of God. Would you trade that for a bowl of soup? Let's keep reading. Esau says, look, verse 32, I'm about to die. What good is a birthright to me? Well, Jacob said, swear to me, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread, some lentil stew. He ate, he drank, he got up, he left. So Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. He showed that it had no value. So I'm going to ask you a question. Would you trade your house for a bowl of my finest red lentil stew? You would not, unless you despised it. Or what about your car? What about your truck? Would you trade that to me for a bowl of soup? Maybe if you despised it. What about your kids? We're six weeks into quarantine. Would you trade them for a bowl of soup? Like a couple of them, the annoying ones, would you trade them for soup? Maybe if you despised them, but you probably wouldn't. It would show that they have no value at all. And Esau, in this moment, turns to temporary pleasure and overlooks his great inheritance, throwing it away. I was trying to think, and my memory's not very good, so I struggle with this. What is the most expensive meal I've ever eaten? What is it? And I was thinking this week and thinking, and I don't know if I can land on it. It was probably years ago, because now that I have kids, I spend as little as humanly possible on food. But back when it was just me and Chantel, we probably then would have eaten our fanciest food, like our fanciest meal. What was yours? Do you remember? Does it stand out? Like, do you remember what it was, where you had it? Do you remember how much it cost? Like, was it 100 for both of you? Was it 150 for both of you? Have you broken 200 for two of you? Maybe you're looking at each other and you're nodding, thinking, yeah, I remember that. Now, here's the great equalizer and the irony of the situation. Compare whatever meal you just thought of, that most expensive meal you've ever had, and hold that in one hand and in the other hold a 99-cent McDonald's cheeseburger. 
The great equalizer is this. The one meal might be worth 10 to 20 times more. It might provide 10 to 20 times the pleasure as you're eating it. But regardless of which meal you eat, when you wake up the next morning, you're hungry. You're hungry for breakfast. You're hungry. It doesn't satisfy. You'd think with one meal costing 20 times the McDonald's cheeseburger that you'd be full 20 times as long. You're not. That pleasure, that satisfaction, that fulfillment, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. Esau sits down, he grabs his piece of bread, eats his soup, has his fill, walks away the next morning, wakes up hungry, and it's gone. And he's given up his birthright blessing, his inheritance for it. His inheritance for it. Why on earth are we talking about soup? Because the church was on the edge of giving up Jesus for nothing. They were willing to give up everything, their great blessing, their great inheritance. They were going to give it up for temporary pleasure, for fleeting fulfillment, soup. And the author who writes the letter of Hebrews is writing to those Christians saying, don't you realize the ridiculousness of the situation? That somebody could be so godless that they would give up Jesus for something so inferior to Jesus. It would be as ridiculous as giving up your inheritance for soup. He's gone through every example in the book. You've been following along possibly since we started Hebrews. right? Jesus is far superior to the, the message and the covenant and the law that the angels brought. He's far superior to Moses and the hope and the salvation and the deliverance that Moses offered the rest. Jesus is far superior to the priesthood, to the high priest. He can offer us assurance and confidence as we meet with the Father face to face. He's greater than the, the sacrificial system. He's greater than the place where the system took place, like the tabernacle, the temple. He's greater than the sacrifices themselves. Over, 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 over. Jesus is superior. He's greater. Jesus is better than all of that. We know this. It's been established. And he says, don't shrink back. Don't give up. Don't quit. Now, after hitting them and hitting them and hitting them with this over and over again, he turns to some encouragement. Chapter 11, right? Pastor Nick took us through that. The list of faithful believers. He turns back to their Old Testament, their scripture that they love and they know and they grew up with. And he says, look at it. Look at the faith displayed in here. Look at each person and how much they were willing to go through and how much they were willing to give up because they had faith. They had assurance and hope in what was coming, even though it hadn't yet come. So they pushed on. We weren't even worthy of them. They were willing to sacrifice so much, and the promise wasn't even fulfilled yet. They had hope in a Messiah that they never met, but they were sure that he was coming. They were sure God was going to keep his promises. 
So they were willing to enter dens of lions. They were willing to be thrown into fire because they were sure that the Messiah was coming, even though he hadn't yet come. We live post that. Jesus has come. He has given the sacrifice to forgive our sins. We live with a fulfilled promise. And they would look at us and say, how could you not have faith in that? God kept his word completely. The prophecies came true. The Messiah came. The sacrifice took place. And now he's offered you everything. Everything. Like you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at that fire and not knowing, would God save them? Now imagine us and God standing in the fire going, I'm right here. Step in. Don't be afraid. I'm right here. We have that assurance. We know it took place. And yet I'm as guilty of it, I'm sure as you are, that we're just not always committed to it. We're not always letting Jesus be the focus of our lives, the center of our lives, and we drift. We drift in our faith, we drift in our attention, we drift in our time and our energy and our focus, we drift in our first love, we drift into sin, we drift into self-doubt, we drift into self-righteousness. And then we come back to Jesus and back and forth we go. And I just, I urge you, I urge you like the author is urging his church. Don't give up everything for nothing. Let's read these verses together. This is the book of Hebrews. This is chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 14. And we're going to read to 17 right now. The author says this. He says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears. He could not change what he had done. A sobering reminder to their church that to give up on Jesus, to walk away from Jesus, how could you go back to say that if I have to choose between Jesus and grace and salvation and hope and assurance and the Old Testament promise and the sacrificial system and the law, if you choose if you choose that sacrificial system, that broken promise over Jesus, then you've rejected him. You've rejected his salvation. And that's the one sin God can't forgive. Someone who won't allow Jesus to become the Lord of their heart, the one that they follow, their master and their first love. How could you do that? How could you trade Jesus for soup? The author has one comparison left. He's compared Jesus to everything and shown the, the greatness of Jesus time and time again. Finally, he appeals 
to the mountains. This is it. You get to pick the story of the two mountains. This is the very next story in Hebrews 12. And maybe you didn't grow up reading the story of the two mountains. Like, I've looked through Cooper and Jesse's children's Bibles. It doesn't seem to make it for some weird reason. Like, there's Jesus dying, rising from the dead. There's, like, Paul the missionary. They don't include the story of the two mountains. Odd, right? These two mountains are the pinnacles, are the foundations of the two promises. Jesus' promise, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, our future home in heaven here on earth. Representing all of the promises that Jesus has made and fulfilled. And the other mountain, Mount Sinai, of course, the foundation and the pinnacle of the Old Testament covenant, where it all came to be, where God met with the people and ushered in a time of promise and a time of sacrifice. The author is going to hold those two mountains before the church and say, this is it. Which one do you want? One of these is going to last forever. One of these is going to be destroyed by fire. Which one do you want? Because this is it. It's time to pick. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, please do not read that story to your children. Like, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Do not read that story to your kids. I'm urging you. That story is terrifying. And our Sunday school teachers, they lied to us. Like, I love them, but they lied to us. They did. They lied to us. Because when they told the story, it was Israel coming out of Egypt, and you know, they came through the Red Sea, and God came through for them, and they walked through the desert for a few days and arrived at God's mountain, which was a hill in the desert. And God met with them. He came down in this cloud. Moses went up to go say hi to God. They hung out for a while, right? And God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and Moses had these big tablets, and why are they so big? Why are they rounded at the top too? Like, why are they flat at the bottom and rounded? That makes no sense. And then Moses walks down the mountain, gives them to the people, and the people have their rules to live forever. And the Sunday school teacher teaches us, and it's like the flannel graph, you remember. And we're like, oh, neat, Moses meets with God. That's interesting. And God loved Moses, and Moses loved the people. That's not the story. That's not it at all. And this morning, we're going to look at a few of those verses from Exodus 19. The story is terrifying. And that's what makes it an incredible contrast. All right, enough of me talking. Let's let the Bible do some talking. Let's read the story of the mountains in Hebrews. And then let's look at Exodus to see exactly what I'm talking about. The author compares the mountains. Verse 18. He says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, a mountain burning with fire, darkness, gloom, storm. You've not come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying Moses himself said, I'm trembling with fear. No, you've come to a different mountain, to Mount Zion, verse 22. Church, you've come to the city of the living God, 
Church, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous being made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you remember the story of Cain and Abel. When Abel dies, the story says that his blood cries out, vengeance. Jesus' sprinkled blood cries out, forgiveness. Forgiveness. He says, you haven't come to that first mountain. You've come to the second. Don't trade it for soup. Why was this story in Exodus so terrifying? Was it really the way that this author describes it? Darkness and storm and trumpet blasts and fear? I'm going to read a few verses from Exodus 19, a few excerpts that I've highlighted. Listen to this story and see if this lines up with what you learned in Sunday school. And then we're going to read a couple verses from the next chapter, chapter 20. This is from Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So put limits for the people around the mountain and tell the people, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. They are to be stoned, shot with arrows, Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. On that morning, the third day, there was thunder. There was lightning and a thick cloud came over the mountain. A very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke, it billowed up from the mountain like smoke billows from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. God then gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And the two verses immediately following the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 say this. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning, when they heard the trumpet, when they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, Moses. Yourself will listen. Do not have God speak to us or we'll die. That was the intimacy of their relationship with their God. That was the moment God ushered in the promised covenant to them. Distance, fear, wrath, judgment. They didn't want to hear from him. 
They'd rather have Moses stand up in front of them and preach a good sermon rather than stand at the mountain as Almighty God is shaking it. And it's looking like a volcano. And there's a thunderstorm over top of the volcano. And if any of them take a step too close, if their animals take a step too close, not only do they need to die, but their loved ones can't even touch them. Welcome to your new relationship with the promised God of Abraham. Welcome home. And the author of Hebrews holds this one mountain in his hand and he says, you want this over Jesus? Thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful song? Saints being made perfect? Jesus, the mediator of the covenant? The sprinkled blood forgiveness? A holy city? A new Jerusalem? Our promised inheritance? The presence of God? And you would walk away from that church. You would walk away from that for this. It had gone desperate. The author had used every example he knew, right? He, he had listed off every incredible person in the Old Testament, like very quickly, who showed great faith. And he's like, he's just hitting them over and over and over again. If you choose not to follow Jesus, I have no idea why. Because everything we have says he's greater and he's better. Everything. Everything. In this life, it can be tempting to not let Jesus be the master of our hearts. It can be tempting to straddle that line between following him and following what we want. Right? Letting him have some control, but not letting him have all of it. And, and doubts can creep in, and doubts can drive a wedge in between us and God. And doubts can make us wonder, is it even real? Or the temptation of sin can get inside of us and can pull us back away from that close relationship with God and make us want to follow the way that we used to live, the pleasure that we used to have. Maybe being a Christian has just been a road of sacrifice for you. And you're just about done. Like you've just given up so much. And you don't know if you can give anymore. And it was so much simpler before all of this. The world, the world doesn't have a place for us. Not only does the world look down on the Christian, the world is beginning to hate the Christian and our way of life and the way that we treat morality, the way that we handle God's word. Are we gonna drift back? Are we gonna give it up, walk away? I can't imagine giving it all up for nothing, for something fleeting. I can't imagine. I was just talking to the youth group the other day about righteousness, about the day that we stand before the Father in heaven, right? Revelation 20. 
every person ever standing before their God. And it says that he takes the books, he opens up the books, there's our lives written down. Everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's all there. The mistakes we made, the choices, the attitudes, it's just laid bare. And he looks at us and he sees right through us. And when he looks at the people of faith, when he looks at you, when he looks at me, if we've chosen to be covered by the sacrifice of Jesus, our names are written in a separate book. And the book of life is opened up before God. And down those pages, written in, in the blood of Jesus, in the sacrifice of Jesus, written in this book where these names can't be erased, to the people that have chosen to be covered by the king in his sacrifice. And God's going to go through that list and he's going to find my name. And instead of seeing my brokenness and my mistakes and my selfishness and my anger and my pride and my fear, and instead of seeing that, he's going to see the righteousness of his son. Dressed in righteousness alone, right? Dressed in his righteousness. Faultless to stand before the throne. He'll look at me and he'll see his son reflecting back at him. And he'll say, welcome home. I know you. You're covered in my son. He saved you and you lived for him. Welcome home. And there's going to be people that stand before him and they're like, God, I'm here. And God's going to say, I'm not sure who you are. I see the mistakes you made, but I don't have your name written here in the book of, of life. Who are you? And they're going to go, well, I, I did church things. I was a part of this. I was here. You traded the opportunity to have relationship with me for sin. You traded it for self-righteousness. You traded it away for nothing. My king, my king would give up everything for me. How could I not give up everything for him? What are my kids going to see one day as they grew up and they look at the life of their dad? Like they're not going to see perfect. They're going to see they're going to see the opposite of perfect. They're going to see all of my mistakes and my bumps and my bruises, and they're going to see my attitudes. But man, they're not going to see someone that trades it all away for temporary, fleeting pleasure. No way. They're going to see someone that sticks it out right to the very end. Someone who's just dressed in Jesus. Who makes mistakes, but tries. Tries every day to be a little bit more like him and a little bit closer to him. Because I'm looking forward to the day when I stand before my dad. I don't know what I would do if my church was giving all of that up. And I feel like this author here, he's kind of at his wit's end too. So I encourage you as, as, as believers in Jesus, as people of the church, 
I know we're six weeks into this. I know that the novelty is gone. Being at home isn't fun anymore. Being scared, that's long gone. Now we're just angry. Now we're just tired. Now we want to go outside and we're going to go to Walmart and we're going to buy stuff and lick people and touch stuff. We're done. We are done with this. Throw out the gloves and the masks. Like some of us are just, I don't know, it's over. Oh man. I know. I know it's hard. But don't give it all up. Don't give up for soon. All right. Enjoy your lunch. Have a bowl of soup. Let's pray. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be his than have riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands I'd rather be led by his nail-scarred hands. Thank you for the reminder that no matter what we're going through, you're worth it. No matter what we're giving up, it is the best deal in history. Help us choose Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai. Help us choose our living hope in Jesus rather than ritualistic religion. Help us choose a God who is a consuming fire instead of the ashes of this life. Help us choose the blood that cries out for our forgiveness rather than the blood that cries out for vengeance. Help us choose to take up our cross today and follow you instead of our happy, comfortable Canadian Christian life. Help us choose Jesus. Help us choose Jesus. Amen. Prisway Church, wherever you are, whatever God brings your way this week, remember our God is a consuming fire. And today, don't choose soup. God bless. Have a good week.